You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where sometimes it's really hard working all by yourself. Why is everyone so f***ing stupid? Why aren't more people intelligent like me? I'm so lonely, so lonely, so lonely and sad real alone. Hello and welcome to an all-on-your-own episode of just one of the guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bring you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, two of my favorite Green Lanterns out there. Of course, Guy is now Warrior, so if you've been following along, you know that. Hey everyone, it's me. Just me this time. Yep, no one else. After our co-host of Palooza month, it's just me on my own, which is awesome because I get to cover two great books in Green Lantern number 68 and Guy Gardner Warrior number 37. So, I'm looking forward to that, but I'm also looking forward to reading all your folks' wonderful emails you've sent in over the past, God, almost a past month. And hopefully all you folks out there who've been subscribing to the show haven't seen any interruption, any interruption in your feed. Uh, I've moved to the new Two True Freaks website as of this recording, so all the shows are going to be found on the new, brand new, all brand spanking new, 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 twotruefreaks.com. So, hopefully if you've subscribed to iTunes, should be there. If not, head on over to twotruefreaks.com. But, I'll get to the emails and some more plugs after this promo or two, and then after that, my solo coverage of Green Lantern number 68. Red alert! All hands to battle stations! Engage! Captain Picard is a pain, isn't he? Interesting. No redeeming qualities. I think you should be destroyed. The great Captain Picard of Starfleet falls to Earth. Go back. Thou shalt most certainly die. Protect yourself, Captain, or they'll destroy you. We are dangerous.
Join the two true freaks, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell, for Star Trek Monthly Monday. Every month, the freaks will bring you two episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation and more. Episodes of Star Trek Monthly Monday can be found for free at twotruefreaks.com. They can also be downloaded for free from iTunes. Hi, this is Professor Allen. And when I'm not listening to an awesome podcast, like this one, I'm co-hosting an awesome podcast, The Book Guy Show. Every week, we cover book news, book reviews, comic books, audiobooks, audio dramas, and podcasts. Search for The Book Guys Show on iTunes or come visit us at bookguys.ca. And we're back. And again, it's kind of unusual saying we're back because it's just me recording today. But again, that's awesome because finally I get a chance to get to the thing that I've been waiting to get to for such a long time. Your folks' wonderful, wonderful email. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and the first listener today, geez, I've done the, hadn't done this in so long I know how to do this. And the first letter today comes from listener Scott Davis, and he writes in, Hi, Sean. How are things going in Oklahoma these days? Well, they've been going good. You know, um, unfortunately, recently we had kind of some storms here, but I'm certain you all know about that. Actually, I want to say, you know, this will be coming out probably way after the storms have already gone and everything. But thank you to everyone who wrote in uh, with your concern about my well-being, my family's well-being during the storms. Uh, to let you know, Everything's fine. We didn't have any damage, so thankfully we missed it. Uh, the people down in Moore, which is a suburb south of where I live in Oklahoma City, didn't fare so well. But uh, Going to Scott's email, it says, uh, I was able to get through some of the Green Lantern issues recently, and I have some comments below. Green Lantern number four. This was a weird issue with the flats, the flash going nuts in the city. That poor guy on page four, on page four being wheeled out on the stretcher looked like he's seen better days. This is the first time I've seen the Flash Museum. I found it strange that the curator would rather die at the museum than run out the front door to save himself. Well, I guess that's just loving your job a bit too much. Talk about some unnecessary dedication going down with the ship. By going down with the ship. On page 15, Flash goes back in time a few minutes and hides behind the curtains to wait for Hal Jordan. Does that mean we've been reading a story that's a few minutes in the past and not current? the real story happening a few minutes in the future? Yeah, uh, I don't understand time travel stories either, so I just go with it. And then the image of the Predator jumping out of Carol's body at the end was bizarre. Weird issue. Yeah, it was Jones' kind of experimental look. Still uh, having to deal with the crossover of the Return of Barry Allen story over in The Flash, it was nice to see Hal Jordan at least try and associate with the person who he thought was Barry. Scott continues, Green Lantern 41. I found it strange that Hal was attracted to Carol's tough masculine. I think they should explore this bit more. Uh, no, they shouldn't. This was another strange issue with the Predator taking over Aresia and the sudden appearance of Deathstroke at the end. Green Lantern 42. This was a terrible issue. The best part of the whole issue is the image of Hal in the cover in the fetal position after being kicked in the nuts. I'll, uh, I'll agree with that. Hilarious stuff. Ace's Scott continues. 
I'm really supposed to read seven issues of Deathstroke the Terminator to figure out what he's referencing on page five about the mess in Korak? No, no you shouldn't. Unless you're into Deathstroke, and then why not? On page 13, Hal looks like a loser while being coddled by Carol while Deathstroke and Predator brutally fight each other. Okay, now I've seen it all. The reveal of Star Sapphire being pregnant is absolutely bizarre. How is Carol not pregnant at the same time? I'm lost. You're not the only one, Scott. I didn't get it either. And I guess there's something happens in... I heard... Oh, I want to say Rob Kelly and Shag talk about this, maybe, in Green Lantern? I know someone mentioned it on a podcast I was listening to, but... Yes, something actually does become of the baby, but I don't know. Scott continues on the last page. Deathstroke is dedicated to fighting bullying now. WTF. Agreed. Green Lantern number 43. This was another bizarre issue. Must be strange time for Gerard Jones with his career with Green Lantern. I thought it was strange on the first page that Larvox couldn't signal other Green Lanterns that the deadly aliens were coming. There goes some trouble for another part of the cosmos. Great job, Larvox. Wait to shirk your Green Lantern responsibilities. I still don't understand why Blackest Night is politically incorrect, but calling Tom Pieface isn't. Yeah, I kind of was irked at that as well, but uh, it's in the past, and uh, yeah, uh, trying to PC up the oath and still being able to call your name, call your best friend who's Inuit a pretty derogatory name is just mind-boggling, but there it is. Uh, Scott continues, I've thought about this for a while and I just don't get it. From these panels, it looks like Tom has explained to Hal that he doesn't like to hear the term pie face anymore. Let's see if Hal has some respect to stop using it. No, I can guarantee he probably don't. Or he probably won't. Uh-oh, Hal promised Aresia he'd take her flying today. She's going to be pissed when he doesn't show up. Eh, that's not odd, Hal uh, ditching a girl for someone else. And thanks a lot, Eddie, for making Earth a target for the aliens by coming here. Interesting on page 9, Hal doubts his willpower by saying, I don't know if I have enough willpower to control such power. You don't hear that very often from a Green Lantern. And wow, the splash, splash page on pages 12 and 13 shows Eddie just slaughtering aliens. Don't mess around with the Eddie. It should be a tagline. I'll get with uh, Jeff Johns and let him know that when he brings Eddie back, we'll have him utter that tagline. That'd be cool. Sean, your comment about the kid being kidnapped in the front of the, in front of Tom had me in tears. If you don't remember that, Tom was driving his car and he was on his cell phone, and there was a kid in the other car looking out, and it looked like the uh, kid had been taken by the person in the car. So it was a musical thing. You made my day with that one, Scott says. I did find it strange that the enemy ships had been blowing up by themselves in the last few issues, like this issue and the Guy Gardner issue number ten with Boudica. It is kind of a strange way to end the story. It was funny in the end when Hal is left with thousands of babies to take care of, and all he can do is think about how quickly to get rid of them by building a vivarium in space. Good job, Hal. Scott finishes with, please, no more Nickelback. I cringe every time I hear them. Terrible. Well, I don't think you're the only one there, Scott. Don't think you're the only one. He finishes up, thanks again, Sean, and I'll talk to you soon, Scott. Thanks, Scott. I really appreciate you writing in. Scott has a little follow-up to the email. He says... Uh, he uh, tells me, thanks, Sean. I'm having a great time reading and reviewing these issues with you. Thanks for taking time to respond. And I'm flattered that you're reading them on the air. He says, I actually read a bunch more of these. I've actually read a bunch more of the issues, and I'm putting together another email for you. Ha. 
and he mentions, by the way, Rush is a great band. And he asks if I'm a fan of Canadian legend Gordon Lightfoot. Don't know much of his stuff, but I've, you know, from what I've heard of his stuff, I, I'm, I enjoy it. I'm not a fan per se, but it's not someone I hate and like to go back. Check out his classic Canadian Railroad show, Scott says. Thanks, Scott. I may have to put that on my playlist. So I'll go check that out. Our next letter is entitled Great Show, which I always appreciate hearing. And this is from Joseph Beerbo, I think, or Biro, B-I-E, I'm sorry, B-E-R-A-U. I hope I'm getting that right, Joseph. If not, you know, write in and tell me how to say it phonetically because I'm an idiot when I do this stuff. Uh, Joseph writes, Sean, I just wanted to send you a quick note to say that I'm loving the show. Well, thanks, Joseph. I, I appreciate that. I just recently stumbled upon it through a promo on another podcast. I don't recall which. Great underappreciated subject matter, Kyle and Guy. I'm a big fan of Guy especially. But more to the point, though, I love the style of your show. I love the harshly critical British computer voice, and I love the personality you bring to the table. Yeah, well, the computer voice is always there to make sure that when I mess up, uh, it's there to correct me. Thank you, Joseph. It is awfully frequent when I have to correct this buffoon, so I get her a good amount of time on the show. Yeah, she's... she's helpful. Anyway, Joseph's email continues. I listen to and enjoy a lot of comic podcasts, he says, as I have a similar job situation as the one you described that got you into listening to podcasts to begin with, lots of tedious work and isolated conditions. It's refreshing to know that there's at least one person in the geeky podcasting world that represents a different political view. Myself not being as liberally minded as some, slash any of my geeky friends or the host of my favorite podcast, it's sometimes easy to imagine that everyone out there reads all the same pamphlets. If by chance, on this case, I'm confusing you with another podcaster, what I meant to say is it's comforting to know that you and all the other geek podcasters have identical political viewpoints. There, that should cover all the bases. Yeah, I, I freely admit that I'm pretty conservative in my beliefs, but I try to shy away from it on the show. Uh, I'm here basically to cover the comics, and a lot of times I even rail when there's uh, political screeds in the comics, because... I really don't need that. I'll save that for MSNBC or Fox News. If I wanted to get politics, I'd go there. Uh, Joseph continues, At any rate, politically or not, you're definitely a very unique voice in the world of podcasting and one of my favorite shows. Thanks again, Joseph. Can't wait to continue catching up on the episodes, and I'm sure I'll enjoy every minute of it. Keep up all the various good work, sir. Joseph Bureau. Thanks, Joseph. I really appreciate you writing in, and continue to listen. There's only more good things coming. Words fail me. Our next letter comes from uh, Mr. Luke Giaconetti, host of Earth Destruction Directive over at the brand new 2TrueFreaks.com and my uh, former co-host uh, over the past month on the uh, Way of the Warrior storyline. Luke writes in with the title of At Episode 60 and Still Rocking. Luke writes, Sean, I had a whole double rant in this space about first off the idea that the new DCU is all blood and guts all the time, as well as bemoaning the replacement characters themselves being replaced. But in the interest of time and trying to keep this positive, I will simply state that I disagree that the current DCU is all blood and guts, and I'm glad that Barry Allen is the Flash, and leave it at that. Uh, we've discussed this before, and I think Luke and I discussed this off-air during some of the recording sessions we had last month, that, yeah, the DC Universe isn't all blood and guts, but there have been moments that have been pretty violent. I know the Flash comic is very, not really whimsical, but very lighthearted and has a very uh, upbeat feel. 
But there are some things that I guess have turned really dark. And I think mostly because it was the Green Lantern books, especially with Blackest Night, where again, I hearken back to, I think, issue 43 of the Jeff Johns run, where Black Hand has turned from a sort of whimsical, goofy villain who robs banks with uh, little uh, catchphrases turned into uh, a murdering necrophiliac who blew his brains out on camera. Well, not really on camera, but on panel. So there are, I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is we both have our points. Uh, yes, not all of DC has gotten dark, but it has gotten a bit darker in certain areas. But I understand your point, and I'm not going to argue with you, Luke, because, you know, honestly, if I were to argue with you, you would win. That's how good you are. Luke continues on saying, I'd also like to say that in regards to Wonder Girl, going back to being a Wonder Woman character again, I still think that Hawkman is less convoluted than all that stuff. Maybe I'm simply prone. Could be the fact that you know a heck of a lot more about Hawkman than I ever would about Wonder Girl, so... Luke continues, also, Hawkman was not really a Native American here. He was different, yes, but he was still in the same Thanagarian we had been reading about since Hawkworld. His mom, Naomi, was a human Native American, though. And uh, Luke kind of explained that, I think, in the first issue that we did, the crossover with uh, Guy Gardner Warrior. Uh, what was that, number 33, I believe? I can't remember. It's one of the back issues. Go listen to it. Luke was a great guest. I loved him. I loved having him on. It was awesome. Uh Luke continues, Thomas and I are apparently both of the five people who like the Jared Stevens fate, by the way. And also, Nuclon was the later known was later known as Adam Smasher in the modern JSA. He goes on a very nice character arc in, over the long run of that book. The various cameos and vignettes in the issue of Guy Gardner sound awesome. I always liked big crowd scenes like that and playing spot the character. Which reminds me of a story which Jeff Johns told about working with George Perez on Final Crisis, Legion of the Three Worlds miniseries. John says they got a call from Perez about a page, and George said, Ah, oh, there's an awful lot of people on this page. Can can I add another guy? Oh, that George Perez. Yeah, George Perez is known for putting tons of characters in his uh, stuff, and he is an amazing artist. Uh, again, he's referencing uh, issue 29 of Guy Gardner that was drawn by Phil Jimenez, and there were just, you know, spotting all the cameos in that was just great fun. Guy Gardner Warrior number 29, The Opening of the Warriors Bard, a book everyone, I recommend everyone go pick up. It's just a fun, like Thomas said, snapshot of the DC universe at that time. Luke finishes up. Anyway, enjoy the show. Looking forward to hearing more Guy Gardner stuff. Thanks, Luke. Well, thank you, Luke. Uh, if you haven't been checking out Luke on his podcast, Their Destruction Directive, you can catch it at the all-new 2TrueFreaks.com website, or you can subscribe to it on iTunes. He's also got a couple of blogs, one being Carter Hall and the other one, El Jacone's Comic Bunker. Go check those out, won't you? Our next letter is from Professor Allen, the liaison to the sovereign state of Latveria and a fan of Dr. Doom, because Doom commands you be his fan. Professor Allen writes in saying, Sean, I've been enjoying your coverage of Warrior since I've been able to follow along with most of the issues since number 25. With all the tattoos and Dementor and the bar, being able to look these issues have definitely helped. Yeah, getting a visual reference for the for the stuff I'm talking about definitely helps in you know setting the image in your book. You get a thing of a guy with big tattoos fighting this character called Dementor, who's like a 
muscled up Dave Mustaine doomsday thing, describing it really doesn't do justice. You have to have the book in front of you. So thanks for professor for going out and buying the book. Uh, the professor says my mini run ends at number 31, but with any luck and more, but with any luck, more of these will be show up soon in the 25 cent bins. Next time a LCS brings them out. I continue to enjoy the show. Keep up the good work. Well, thanks professor Allen. If you guys didn't know, professor Allen is the, well, one of the hosts of the book guy show, along with Paul Alves, uh, father Robert Balasser and Sir Jimmy regular hosts over there they uh, cover book news they cover podcast news they cover comic books they cover audio dramas really fun show uh i love listening to the book guys and professor allen is one of the regular hosts over there go check it out we've got a few more letters but i'm going to finish up with this one from tom panarese host of taking flight a robin podcast which he's a bit behind on but hopefully he'll be uh, getting a couple more episodes out by the time this one comes out taking flight is a uh, basically a show chronicling the adventures of the uh, character of Robin and his uh, transformation from Robin, the uh, sidekick to Batman, to Nightwing. And uh, now he's going to be covering all the iterations of Robin, including Jason Todd and one of my favorite Robins, the Tin Drake Robin. So definitely go check out Taking Flight. Uh, Tom writes in, Sean, I'm almost done catching up to your show, and while I'd originally intended to write in the, into the letter column, as it is, when I was all caught up, I wanted to write a short email concerning something you pointed out in issue episode, episode 57. It seemed that Green Lantern 57, Simon, the uh, dome-headed brain guy, knew a lot about Kyle and his short career as Green Lantern, as opposed to knowing next to nothing about the ever-changing roster of the Titans. I think I've got an explanation for this. The last time we had seen Simon was in the crisis, when Brainiac literally blew his brains out all over the floor of his ship, and at the time the Titans were made up of the mostly classic Wolfman-Perez lineup. Wonder Girl, Starfire, Changeling, Cyborg was still on the team, Jericho had taken Kid Flash's place, Robin had become Nightwing, and Raven was MIA. Simon wasn't seen or heard of again until right around Zero Hour, where he appeared in three issues of the Titans, not in his dome-headed form but as a double helix that traveled through space and caused all sorts of destruction. Okay. In New Titans 114, he destroyed an entire planet in a way that was obvious reference to the Dark Phoenix saga and took out a few Dark Stars as well. On the last page of Titan Zero, we see the double helix floating near what's left of Oa and then see Kyle Rayner. On the last page of the following issue, the New Titans 115, we see Kyle arrive in New York City. The double helix follows him and changes into the mysterious cloaked figure. So I'd say that since Simon was following him across the universe, he probably scanned Kyle's mind and saw what he'd been up to. Since Kyle was new to being a hero and probably not up on his current team rosters, it was unlikely that he would have known all the shakeups in the Titans lineup. It's not the best explanation, but it works. I'm looking forward to catching up with the next few episodes, especially since I have always been a huge Titans fan, and Kyle's involvement with the team led me to buying Green Lantern for a while. I've always enjoyed his time as Green Lantern, and I'm glad you've taken up this cause. All the best, Tom. Tom, that actually clears up a lot of things you know that I had questions with with Simon. Uh, it's as good enough an explanation as anything. I will no price you that for one for that one. But uh, Thomas, thank you for writing in. Uh, if you're not checking out Taking Flight, I don't know why you are. Uh, all of these podcasts are podcasts that I listen to, and Tom is really knocking it out of the park with Taking Flight. You would think that the character of Robin was kind of a juvenile, silly character, 
but when he's written in the right hands, especially with Wolfman and Perez and the Teen Titans run and the Tim Drake run written by Chuck Dixon, just some awesome stuff. The character of Robin really does ground Batman. He gives him... He, he brings him back from his sort of driven purpose, and Robin is there to make sure that he doesn't become the overbearing ass that we see a lot in the Grant Morrison-type issues of Batman. So uh, I'm glad that Tom is taking on the mantle of uh, defending this character of Robin. Really loving the show. I've got a few more letters, but I will save those for next time. Again, everyone, thanks for writing in. Uh, I will get to some more letters uh, the next time, like I just said. It's been so long since I've done a solo show, I don't know how to do it anymore. But I do know that I need to get to issue number 68 of Green Lantern. Green Lantern number 68 was cover dated November 1995 and released on September 19, 1995. The cover price was $1.75 US, 250 Canada, and a pound twenty-five UK. The title was Hellfire and Ice. Writer was Ron Mars, penciler Paul Pelletier, inker Romeo Tangal, colorist Linda Medley, letterer Albert Guzman, underworld underling Eddie Braganza, and underworld overlord Kevin Dooley. Rollerblading through Central Park, Rosita Conchita plot device wonders why the heck it has started to snow, since noted weatherman Al Roker promised it wouldn't snow for another few weeks. However, the fiery Latina discovers the snow is the least of her problems, as an icy hand reaches from behind her to cover her mouth. The strange figure quickly encases the girl in a shell of ice, freezing her solid and allowing her to crash to the pavement below, completely trashing her brand new Sony Discman. Oh, and the girl crashed into pieces as well. In another part of the town, Greenland and Kyle Rayner is taking down some neo-Nazi thugs who are rampaging through the village. Kyle asks the goon while they're torching the city and gets the reply of, The apocalypse is coming. Kyle doubts the veracity of the claim when he suddenly pulls a Hell Jordan and gets wanged on the head by a piece of wood. Knocking him to the ground, the gang surrounds the Town Lantern and move in for the kill, until their boot party is broken up by Darkstar, Donna Troy, and a few well-placed mapes and blasts. Returning to Kyle's side, Donna wonders why the whole city is going mad, and Kyle locks the thugs up and puts out the fires they've started. Apologizing for the turn of events, Kyle asks that there is some way that they can salvage the date that they were on, and Donna thinks that they should probably do the superheroic thing. But Kyle would rather do the horizontal mambo thing, so he rings up a flying chariot to impress his comely comrade, and the duo make off into the Manhattan night. Meanwhile, the formerly handicapped man from last issue has made it back to his home, only to find a strange man sitting in it. Introducing himself as Neron, the man tells Paul Christian, Wait, really? That's the guy's name? <sighs> okay, whatever. Neron tells Paul that he will give him the power to walk without ever having loss of his construct legs. All he has to do for him is this one simple favor. Christian is tempted, but unlike the other guy who had long hair and a beard, this one submits to the Dark Lord's request, allowing Neron to fill the legless man with enhanced powers. Back with Kyle and Donna, their romantic chariot ride is cut short by the sight of Central Park being covered in snow and ice. The two fly down to investigate and find that all the snow is real enough as Kyle playfully beans Donna in the face of the snowball. However, the merriment is broken up by the arrival of the newly powered 
Mr. Freeze, who blasts at her heroes with beams of coal from his hands. Donna takes the brunt of the attack, freezing her solid, but Kyle makes a ring construct flamethrower to free. But before he can finish the job, Freeze grabs Kyle and tries to encase him in ice as well. This, of course, leads to the issue's prerequisite Fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, or Rights Reserve, which is cut short by Kyle realizing that they're up against someone more powerful than they had previously expected. Trying to get away, Kyle gets the same treatment Donna did, but before she can maser Kyle out of the block of ice, she gets blasted by an amped-up Paul Christian, now going by the moniker of... Purgatory. Mm-hmm. The group does a lot of punchy-punchy run-run until Kyle slams Purgatory into Freeze with a giant ring construct something. Christ averted, Kyle vows to get Kreeze back to the slab for safekeeping and go after the escaped Purgatory. But despite the victory over his foes, Kyle feels that this madness is only the beginning. This is a much better issue of the Underworld Unleashed crossover than the last Guy Gardner issue. I mean, it could be that the main villain is much more recognizable with Mr. Freeze, uh, but it's also the fact that the artwork is a lot less over-the-top 90s. Could be a bit of the both. Plus, uh, who is surprised to find out that the uh, legless Jesus guy in a wheelchair turns out to be a bad guy because of him slicing open his hand when he was climbing up the Statue of Liberty. Is anyone shocked and surprised about that, especially with the timing of this being around Underworld Unleashed? No, I wasn't either. Anywho, let's go ahead and get on into notes. Uh, we'll start with the cover, and surprisingly enough, with the uh, Underworld Unleashed storyline, uh, green happened to be the main theme of the books. In fact, green was pretty much all of the covers, and a lot of it was this sort of sickly green. However, it is really appropriate here, this, of course, being a Green Lantern title. But everyone's got their, you know, little screaming and agony face. We've got Kyle burning up in fire, green fire, on the uh, in the foreground here. And in the background, we've got what looks to be Neron. But we've got a sort of other character in, in sort of blue, and it looks like it might be Mr. Freeze. I don't know, the... The artwork's a little off on the cover, but you've got to assume that it's Mr. Freeze because he's the main villain in the book. Then cut to page one, and how, again, how can you tell it's the 90s in comic books? You've got a hot girl in really tight bicycle shorts, rollerblading through Central Park, listening to her brand new swanky Discman. Yeah, really 90s imagery here, but good art from Pelletier, so it works this time rather than how it didn't work in the Guy Gardner book. Page 2, panel 3, we get this pretty brutal kill that's uh, this strange person coming up behind the uh, rollerblading girl and basically freezing her to death and knocking her over and crushing, well, not really crushing her body, but her body falls to the ground and just splinters into a million pieces. Uh, it uh, reminds me of either that uh, scene from Jason X where the guy puts the woman's face in uh, liquid nitrogen or it reminds me of an episode uh, of Mystery Science Theater where one of the host segments was Tom Servo trying to bring Crow down to absolute zero. 
Well, Crow, you're not quite zero Kelvin, but still, it's got to be pretty cold in there, huh? All right, this is nothing. Give me a deep breeze, my All right, woo! Hey, woo-hoo. hi, Tom. Hi, Crow. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Satellite of Love. I'm Joe Ross. Hey, wait a minute. What's with the crow in the box? Oh, we're bringing his temperature down to absolute zero. Seems like it might be kind of fun. Wait a minute. You can't do that. If you go to absolute zero, there'll be no molecular motion. It'll start a chain reaction and kill us all. Yeah, that's kind of how it played out in our scenario, too. Well, wait a minute. That's kind of stupid, isn't it? Yeah, it's stupid. We got to get him out of there. Oh, oh. oh good one, Joel. Oops. Uh, we'll be right back. I'm not putting them back together, either. I'm scared. Yeah, it didn't work out very well for Crow, either. Moving on to page four, panel three, uh, we get an image of Green Lantern being hit on the head and knocked out. Wow, that's that's a novel concept. I don't think I've ever seen a Green Lantern get hit on the head and get knocked out. This is a really innovative book, I must say. Moving on to page six, panel three, after Donna rescues Kyle from the neo-Nazis, I've got to wonder... Kyle mentions that they were on a date, so I'm wondering, were they on an actual date in their uniforms, or were they just out on patrol, you know, because the Titans asked them to be out? It's just kind of odd that, you know, they'd go out on a date in their uniforms, but maybe it was just a personal thing and they were flying around town, so. Uh, Same page, panel five. I really love Pelletier's facial expressions. Uh, You've got... uh, Kyle saying that he'd like to finish up the date, and uh, Donna's face on here is just kind of, what's well, kind of pensive, and she's biting part of her lower lip. It's, again, really good artwork from Pelletier. I'm enjoying his stuff. It's it's as good as Bright and Tangal's stuff, and it's as good as Daryl Banks' stuff. I'm really enjoying it. Page 7, Kyle doesn't welsh out on promise, and he actually takes Donna out for a chariot ride in New York City. Actually, it's kind of a bit neater than a chariot ride because Kyle rings up a winged Pegasi chariot complete with Amazon warrior with bow. So if you're a girl and you're hoping for a chariot ride, this is pretty swanky. So give it to Kyle for uh, showing a girl a good time. Page 8, panel 4, we get to the scene where Paul and Neron are meeting and there's a scene where Neron walks into the room and sees, or I'm sorry, Paul walks into the room and he sees Neron there and uh, Paul asks the lights, why don't they work? And Neron mentions, I prefer the darkness. And all I have to say is, you know, I actually preferred Queen. I thought they were a much better band and I like their sound. And oh, wait, he's not talking about the, the band. Thank you. Touching you Yeah, I'm going to try to avoid putting any more darkness on in the podcast. They're, well, they are. Page 9, panel 2. This just kind of, it made me groan when I read it. The name of the character being tempted by the strange demonic creature, possibly from hell, is named Paul Christian. 
really. I mean, they couldn't have come up with a better name, like maybe something a little bit more subtle, like, oh, say, Jesus, make a walk on water or something. It was really ham-fisted. I understand they're going for the sort of parallel to the whole temptation of Jesus in the desert and the 40 days and all this, but uh, I don't like ham-fisted references to religion in my comic books. Uh, I get enough of that in church. Plus, moving on to page 10, the whole temptation thing really shouldn't even, to a normal person, be thought about because Neron never explicitly says what he wants from Paul. He never says what the bargain is for. So if you're entering into this thing with a person who promises you phenomenal power or whatever, and you just go in with it blind, you're... It doesn't make any sense to me. If you're getting into something, you need to know what the what the deal was all about and what you're going to have to provide. Not that I've made tons of deals with the devil, I mean, just with the monzical. Page 12, moving on. Uh, after their romantic little ride in the chariot across the uh, skies of New York City, uh, Donna gets hit in the face with something white flung at her from Kyle, so... <laughs> Okay, it's a snowball. Get your minds out of the gutter, guys. Well, I guess maybe it being a snowball, that could also be filthy as well, but we're going to try and ignore that. Page 13, we get a nice splash of Mr. Freeze in his new uh, Underworld Unleashed empowerment. Now, the way I remember Mr. Freeze is him being in the suit and him being able to freeze things because he used the energy from the suit to create cold. Now, essentially, he's just a... Uh, a very 90s bandaged version of Iceman. In fact, the bandages are wrapped around him in various ways, and he's looking very fit and muscular, unlike the sort of Mr. Freeze that I remember. So, again, very 90s look, but Pelletier pulls it off, and it and it's not it's not over the top. So, uh, it's a good it's a good splash panel here. Moving on a bit, we get the fight between Freeze and our heroes, and one of the neat little things in this. Page 15, panel 4, is when Freeze is using his ice powers, and I thought this was kind of cool, his hands get this sort of weird cross-hatching-like thing. So they're uh, darker blue, but they've got these little these little tick marks in them. And it's a really neat way to show the energy of the ice power coming out of his hands. It's just kind of a dynamic way to to show it rather than just the distinct coloring. So I like that there. Moving on, uh, page 18, panel 1. Uh, now Paul has come in, and he's starting a fight with the heroes along with Mr. Freeze, and he's taken his own, again, very non-subtle name of Purgatory. So for all of you who are Catholic, you you know what Purgatory means. It's the supposed, well, it's the thing in the Catholic Church where uh, Catholics go who haven't confessed their sins but haven't committed a mortal sin. That's where they go until, I think it's the time of the judgment or whatever. I don't know. This is getting far too religious. I need to stop looking at this. Need, uh, again, religion and comics, not a fan. Plus a little nitpicky notice. In uh, the same page in panel three, we get Donna flying over Mr. Freeze, shooting at him with her masers, saying, Kyle, I'm half frozen. I can't keep this. And I think it might be supposed to be, I can't keep this up, but the uh, 
speech balloon doesn't have the word up in there. So just a nitpicky thing there. Page 21, panel 4. Uh, Kyle mentions that he's going to take uh, Mr. Freeze back to the slab. And I guess that's going to be very appropriate because I believe at the beginning of Underworld Unleash, most of the villains were being held at Bell Reeve Prison. And uh, that's where Neron had the uh, breakout happen. So all the criminals from Bell Reeve or Bell Rev, wherever you want to pronounce it or whatever, however you want to pronounce it, was uh, pretty much destroyed at the beginning of the storyline. So there you go. And finally, it might be a kind of trite ending, but on page 22, I do like how we get this close-up shot of the unconscious Mr. Freeze, and there's a tear rolling off of his eye, and of course, because of his body, it's freezing up. So it's a nice ending to the story, and you realize that essentially Freeze is a tragic character. His entire motivation was to try and save his wife, so it's nice imagery here at the end of the book. But that finishes up my notes for Greenlander number 68. I'm going to take a little break here, plug a few promos, and, and when I get back, we'll start up with our coverage of Guy Gardner number 37. See how that turns out. Holy nightmare! So we all know who Robin is, right? Short pants, bad, holy insert object gear jokes, kind of weird relationship with an older man who dresses like a bat. I know, right? So not what Batman needs. Thing is, if that's your impression of Robin, then you don't know Robin. I'm Tom Panneries, and for most of my comic collecting career, I've been a Teen Titans fan. Moreover, I've been a huge fan of Robin and Nightwing, so I've decided to take a look at those who have worn the costume in a podcast miniseries called Taking Flight. Taking Flight focuses on the life and career of Dick Grayson as he evolved from Boy Wonder to Nightwing. I'll take a look at his origin story, his time with the Teen Titans, and his evolution into Nightwing. Along the way, I'll also look at Jason Todd and Tim Drake, stopping right after Zero Hour when Dick left the Titans behind. Episodes will come out just about every week at takingflight.podomatic.com, and you can find show notes at popcultureaffidavit.com. Join me as I take a look at Comic Dumb's most famous sidekick, who is a vital part of Batman's mythos. Teenage Anarchist! Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring The Thrilling Adventures of Superman Golden Age Superman The Superman Fan Podcast Superman in the Bronze Age From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast The New 52 Adventures of Superman Superman Forever Radio I've got a few things to say about Superman The Kara's World Podcast The Superman Vidcast The World's Best Podcast And... Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Danny Sapp, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we're back to take a look at Guy Gardner Warrior number 
37. Guy Gardner Warrior number 37 was cover dated December 1995 with a release date on or about October 3rd, 1995. Cover price was $1.75 US, $2.50 Canada, and there was no UK price. Strange, maybe this got dropped in the UK. Who knows? The title was Let's Make a Deal, so come on down, folks. The story and lies were by Bo Smith, Pencils and False Evidence by Mark Campos, Inks and Indiscretions by Dan Davis, Colors and Crimes of Passion by Lee Lowridge, Letters and Low Blows by Albert Guzman, Cover and Accusations by Paul Pelletier, and Edits and Intimidation by Eddie Braganza. Having been ruined on this prison asteroid, Fabio-haired Guy Gardner is teamed up with Dark Star Colin Farrell, sorry, no, Farron Kolos to take on the Evil Star and his starling minions. Guy and Kolos engage in some ultraviolet fighting with Feinstein, copyright Andrew Layman, 2011, all rights reserved, with Guy smushing the starlings in his hands and beneath his feet while Kolos takes on Evil Star himself. Guy finds that much like Hydra, if you cut open one starling, two take its place, leaving Guy with a smirking mob of malevolent minions. So, in order to cut the wheat from the chaff, so to speak, Guy morphs up some scimitars and goes to town on the diminutive demons. After a lot of hacking and slashing and some bad puns, Guy finishes off the starlings and heads to where Kolos and Evil Star are fighting. Evil Star gets in a few good punches on the heroes, which only serves the duo to blast the baddie with their most powerful weapons. Price is averted, the two frostily part ways, with Kolos locking Evil Star up and Guy taking care of the starling bodies. A moment of an introspection and a look in the mirror cause Guy to morph up a blade, slice off his long, flowing locks, and shriek down from his quote unquote hulked out size. Saying that when he makes it back home, he could use a hot shower and a cold beer, an unexpected guest provides him with one of the cold beer. Guy turns to face the green-jacketed, blonde-mulleted bad guy, Neron, who has an interesting offer for Guy. Neron shows Guy an image of Coast City, just as it was before its destruction. He also shows him his closest friends and loved ones who have passed on, including Carrie Limbo, Raleigh and Mace Gardner, Kilwag, and most importantly, Tora Olafstar. Sadly, Guy has but a moment to embrace his lost love before the phantoms all disappear from reality. Guy asks Neron what he needs to do to make this a reality, and Neron simply replies, Kill John Stewart. Guy balks at the idea, but Neron says that Stewart was supposed to be dead due to the zero hour. In fact, his death was going to be a horrible, agonizing one, and reminding Guy of all that he would gain, Neron mentions that he knows Guy will do the right thing. As Jon Stewart's Dark Star shuttle lands on the asteroid to rescue Guy, Guy morphs up a gun, fires bladed weapons, and waits for his prey to come into range. Stewart nears where Guy is and is caught off guard by a lodge of daggers fired at his head. Fortunately for Jon, Guy was an aiding there, and Jon asks just what the hell is wrong with Guy, and the warrior replies that after they drop off the X-Green Lanterns, all he wants to do is go home. Meanwhile, in a strange, dark place, Guy's evil clone is speaking with the Unseen Man. The man promises imaginable power to the clone, and he gladly accepts. Pseudo-Guy revels in his new power, as a pleased Neron looks on, and mentions that the right choice has been made. 
that does it for issue 37 of Guy Gardner. A lot better than the last issue 37 that we dealt with. And honestly, a lot better than some of the previous issues. Um, Campos's art is getting much better in a storytelling means. The issues that we did with uh, the Way of the Warrior storyline, and especially that last issue, was just... It was over-the-top 90s, but it really wasn't all that good. This is starting to gel together a little better, and it's actually becoming kind of enjoyable. Yes, it's not Mitch Bird's artwork, which I've come to really enjoy as being part of the Bo Smith run, but it is, in its own way, part of the run. So, not the best, but it's getting better. So, there's something to be said for that. I think one of the major things that's helping out the storyline, though, is the fact that we have recognizable villains in Evil Star. So, rather than the random villains that were just created for the Guy Gardner book, we've got someone that we know what he looks like. So, even though the artwork is this amped up 90s style, we can actually relate it to a character that we have an image of in our mind. So, it works out this time. However, going along with notes, we'll start out with a cover, which is a really nice cover from Paul Pelletier. And we've still got the very green motif that was running through all of the Underworld Unleashed books at the time. Over at Fuse from the Long Box, uh, Michael Bailey and Thomas DJ commented on how green the covers were. And yeah, it's uh, got the green sort of Neuron character in the background. Another little thing about the cover is John Stewart's in his Dark Star uniform and Although Pelletier does a good job at drawing Guy in his really creepy sort of alien-esque hook hand, uh, John looks a little off. I don't know if he was getting the reference from someone else, but it doesn't look like the John that I remember seeing in the Green Lantern issue. So, a minor nitpick, but yeah, when you're doing a podcast about comics, you've got to find what you can. Going into the book, page one, how do you know this is a 90s comic? Well, if you take a look at our main antagonist, Evil Star, he looks more pumped up than Arnold Schwarzenegger on steroids. I mean, I remember Evil Star being kind of a lean and mean character from the issues that I saw in Green Lantern, but here he is just, oh, he's rooted up. He's got huge biceps. He's got pectoral muscles that are just rippling with ripplingness I don't know how to explain it it's very 90s I guess Uh, his physicality is overblown but again in a Guy Gardner book of this time you've got to expect the artwork's going to show physically overblown characters so there's that plus on this page we get Guy and Kolos and Kolos is over on the right or sorry the left hand corner of the uh, page and the way his body is positioned it looks like Kolos may have had a bad bean burrito, and he's trying to do a little one-cheek sneak, if you know what I'm saying. Pages 2 and 3, we get the prerequisite 90s two-page splash with Guy fighting against all the little starlings and Kolos fighting against Evil Star. It's a really nice piece of artwork. It's a lot better than what we saw in the Way of the story, way of the Warrior storyline, simply because I think Campos is getting more comfortable with his art and drawing the characters. Plus, the coloring, I think, also helps. It's not as dark. The colors are a lot brighter, and they seem to pop a bit more, so it makes the, the artwork a bit more distinct. However, again, being the 90s, even the little diminutive starlings, which in the previous comics were all depicted as sort of 
you know, squat, pudgy, little, you know, almost baby-like characters, even here, they are completely roided up. I mean, I'm looking at one, and he's got huge uh, trapezius muscles on his back, and his arms are huge. Another one has just uh, incredibly huge biceps, and even their heads are muscled. I mean, well, maybe their heads look kind of brain-like, but it's pretty over the top but it's the 90s folks what are you gonna do page four is pretty ridiculous as guys fighting off the little starlings and he grabs a couple of them over his head and says uh you little poodle boys are barking up the wrong tree and there's only one pound to send you to the pound of pain <laughs> it's ridiculous over-the-top dialogue from Bo Smith, but again, it works in this 90s-era comic. And in panel three, we get a pretty brutal panel of Guy picking up a couple of little starlings and just smashing them together over his head with his fist, and they sort of explode in this giant ball of gore and limbs. That's... I think it's diminished because it has the, uh, it has the sort of uh, onomatopoeia over it saying... Shloosh, which is a nice sound effect, but um, again, the coloring isn't uh, gory and red, so it's it's cartoony in its aspect. But yes, it is over the top violent, so it does a good job of melding the two sort of concepts in a way that's not over the top. Well, it is over the top, but it's not gratuitous and gory. It's not something that I'd be afraid of showing my kids, and also since. Technically, they're just midgets. Them getting smushed really isn't that bad a thing. Letting that sink in. That's not true at all. Plus, on the uh, panel prior to that, the little starlings being lifted up by Guy are going, No! 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 And I just get the image of that, um... Oh, what was it? That droid that was being tortured in Jabba's palace in Return of the Jedi? Which I, sadly, can't find an audio file from, so... Try to conjure up the audio in your head. Page 5, panel 2, we get the editor's note that I guess in uh, issue 4 of Dark Stars that uh, Kolos put uh, Evil Star in jail. So there's that. Doesn't make me want to go read Dark Stars any, but there's that. Page 7, panel 3, I guess it's kind of neat, and we've seen this before. It's uh, when Guy gets all amped up and sort of quote-unquote hulks out his uh powers armor up his body where the flesh has been ripped off and as all the starlings have been attacking and slashing at him we see on his back that a lot of the areas of that back have been covered up with a sort of sheeny metallic thing so it's kind of neat bit of artwork here uh, and it also makes sense that guy would want to protect his internal organs and this would be a way that his boldarian's you know dna would be processing this stuff to protect him kind of neat plus we get some some really awful yet fun puns from bo smith on here as guys going through eviscerating all the little starlings he says you've got to get to the heart of the matter as he plunges a dagger through one of the uh, starlings and he says you've got to head the situation off as he lops off like three heads of the starlings and finally ends with most importantly you've got to be able to make a split second decision as you guessed it, he splits one of these starlings in half. 
all of this is done in silhouette and the colors are red and black. So it's all sort of, well, all sort of surreal and not really that graphic. It's not something that would be stomach turning. So again, good on for being sort of over the top, but not being gory. Page nine, we get a kind of neat uh, panel layout after Kolos and Guy have gotten punched by Evil Star. We get this sort of five panel grid where Evil Star and really nice splash page here. Um, J. David Wiedemann, when he was on, said that splash pages are an art form and that they shouldn't be overused. But here it's used really effectively as the two heroes here are just unloading on Evil Star. Page 11, we get a really, basically a big penis-waving page uh, where Guy and Kolos are going up against each other to see who is the more macho. And it's especially seen in uh, the third panel on this page where Guy's weapon is referred to as the Spank Ray. Prepare your hiney for another blast from the Spank Ray. No! Yeah, I thought that was predominantly a Space Ghost weapon. Then, of course, on page 12, panel 6, even Guy feels that he looks like Fabio. Fabio! 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 We're, We're Fabio. Fabio! That's right, we are all Fabio, star of book covers, movies, and marketer of his own line of chest grease. And why are we all Fabio? Because everyone wants to be Fabio. Men respect Fabio. Women love Fabio. There isn't a female organism alive that doesn't worship Fabio. Fabio. Even Janice Ian kneels at his altar. We believe Fabio is here to stay. That's why we've come up with the... Fabio Kit, the jutting, manly, yet accessible jawline, the soft mane of grabbable hair, and the tan, taut, muffiny chest. Fabio Fever, catch it! Page 15, panel 2. Of course, uh, we get our share of bad hair here with uh, Neron coming in, who's definitely rocking the mullet. It's, it's very 90s. Again, typical. But despite all the 90s silliness, on pages 16 through 18, we get a lot of drama here as Neron's offering Guy some incredibly tempting things. I mean, he's getting back with his family and his friends and the love of his life. And it's all handled in a very touching manner with the reborn visions all egging Guy on, saying that he should do what Neron asks. It all sounds too good to be true until you hear about the price that Guy would have to pay to get all this back. Guy's not ready to kill Jon Stewart. And surprisingly, no, even though Guy is tempted on page 19, he still questions killing Jon. I think Guy smells the BS of Jon dying a horrible death if he doesn't do something, and I think he realized that, that Neuron, or Neuron, whatever is trying to pull one over on him. So I don't think Guy is actually planning on doing it. Page 20, panel 4, we get again. One of my nitpicks is more big guns, but oddly enough, this time they shoot out, rather than plasma, they shoot out knives. So even weirder. And then in panels 5 and 6 on the same page, it's kind of unclear of, with the art what happened to the daggers as they are fired at John. You can't tell if Guy actually fired them at him and they missed or whether it, he was an intentionally firing him at John just to scare him, but the artwork's a little ambiguous. I guess it allows you, the reader, to determine what Guy's intentions were in the book. 
and that's pretty apparent on the next page in the first panel because the knives that look like they're heading directly for John Stewart's head in the previous page are now embedded in the wall, kind of near John, but close to him enough that it you get the idea that he might have been aiming for his head. But you've got to believe that Guy, now in his warrior role, wouldn't have a problem with killing someone. However, Guy is not a murderer. Yes, he may be openly willing to kill people, but I don't think he will take someone's life in cold blood. So Guy is still a hero. He just is able to manage the fact that he's offing the bad guys rather than knocking them out and putting them in jail. And then on pages on the same panel, I'm sorry, on the same page on 21, panels 5 and 6, we get the image just the coloring sort of changing to a sort of blue uh, and purple look and you see Guy in the foreground just really torn up about you know what he had to do and on the final panel you see all the people that he's lost and Guy tells John that he just wants to go home. So really powerful stuff from Bo Smith. Uh, good job at bringing some actual drama into this book that was just kind of a sort of big, goofy 90s-era fight. Bo Smith has the ability to take stories and do incredible fight scenes, but also bring the drama as well. So, uh, again, really love it. Then, of course, finally on page 22, we, we see that at least one Guy Gardner has accepted the temptation of Neron, and unfortunately it's the goofy Guy Gardner who still has the power glove ring thing, and oh man, is this a 90s look, with the helmet and the shoulder pads and the sort of cybernetic legs. I don't get it, but I guess it'll all play out in the future, so you'll have to come back next time to find out what's going on with that. But that finishes up my notes on the issue. Let's go ahead and do something that I haven't done in quite a while. Take a look at some of the ads in this wonderful over-the-top 90s comic. The front and side cover is an ad for Levi's jeans, including the 505 Classic, the Relaxed 550, and the Loose 560 jeans. And basically they have a picture of some cute little puppies, a Dalmatian, uh, it looks like a pug and a beagle, and you're supposed to uh, relate the looks of the dogs to the jeans. So I guess some of the dogs are saggier and some of the jeans are saggier. So there's the correlation. A few pages in, we get an ad for the advanced, is this the advanced one? Yeah, I think it's the advanced Dungeons and Dragons player's manual. Well, this might be the second edition uh, because it has an audio CD coming along as well. So it might be uh, time for them to be revamping the whole D&D thing. I think this may have been after Gary Gygax left uh, TSR, so the uh, game went through some changes and modifications to try and bring it into the 90s. Uh, it's some good artwork here of a attacking orc uh, running at you and this sort of, uh, I guess, obviously a dungeon with skulls and stuff on the ground, so neat artwork there. The next page is a ad for a couple of... Uh, well, it looks like a Chevy Corvette and uh, a Shelby 427 Roadster, and they're uh, monogram models. And uh, for some reason, uh, they come with a limited edition Batman comic book with them. Uh, it said it was originally issued September 1976, 
it looks like it is it has Batman on the cover and they're going into some sort of tomb something's leaping at Robin and I don't know exactly what it is they don't say what uh, Batman comic it is but it's neat you buy a bottle and get a Batman comic so that's kind of cool a few more pages in you get this thing that again like the character in the movie I was never good at doing that it's one of those magic eye pictures where you sit and stare at it and you relax your eye and it reveals something. And I guess this is for the Kevin Smith film Mall Rats because it's got Jane Silent Bob down at the bottom of this weird magic eye poster saying Jay's catchphrase snoochie boochies. So Mall Rats, it's it's a thing. Good movie. Not the best of Kevin Smith's movies, but probably better than Jersey Girl. And then after that, of course, the most popular character of the 90s had to get his own video game. And yes, it was exclusive for the Super NES. It's the match made in hell of Spawn, the video game, where you as Spawn get to fight all the wonderful Todd McFarlane villains. So since I didn't have a Super NES, never played it, it looks like your typical side-scroller, so could be fun. In the middle of the book, we get a two-page uh, advertisement for uh, Street Fighter 2 on the Game Boy. Now, I don't know about you, but Street Fighter is a game that I think would best work on you know console systems and not on the Game Boy, but I guess it uh, translated there. And However, I don't think advertising it with a very divine-looking mother and bright, gaudy orange moo-moo with very orange almost Peg Bundy-esque hair, is really the way to sell it. Could have done a better advertising job, folks. Not the way to sell a Game Boy game about Street Fighter. A few pages in, you get a house ad for the Superman Man of Steel gallery, the uh, world's greatest hero by the world's greatest artists, including people like uh, Mike Allred, Terry Austin, John Bogdanov, John Byrne. Let's see, we've got Alan Davis, Kieran Dwyer... Dave Gibbons, Tom Grummet, always good. Stuart Emmerman, Dennis Janke, Dan Jurgens, Gil Kane, uh, Martin Nodell, that's interesting, the uh, Green Lantern one. Paul Pelletier, uh, Bill Sinkevitz, always cool to see him doing it. Kurt Swan, a classic Superman artist. Art the Bear, Bruce Tim, Alex Toth, and Mike Zeck. Uh, to name just a few of the people who were doing artwork on this. It was a one-shot that came out in October that year, and uh, it also promoted the uh, never-ending battles continuing in Superman, Action Comics, Adventures of Superman, Superman the Man of Steel, and the newly introduced Superman the Man of Tomorrow. So uh, I wonder if Michael uh, Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor, once they get back, will be covering this. I'd love to hear what they think about this. The subscription page for DC Comics has Batman large and in charge on there, and uh, this time, to get you to order from the DC subscription, they will give you the uh, 12 issues of the comic for the year, plus you'll get the annual in for free. So that's kind of a good that's kind of a good price, I would say. Uh, looking like you'll save like 9 bucks over a subscription, up to almost 10 bucks for titles like Legion of Superheroes and Starman. So if comic book shops weren't around, probably subscription was the way to go. Near the back of the book, we get a sort of hypnocoin advertisement with Alfred E. Newman uh, commanding us to watch Mad TV. Now, for those of you who don't know, Mad TV was sort of a 
Well, it was a rival competitor to Saturday Night Live. I remember it airing around the same time on Saturday nights, except rather being on NBC, which Saturday Night Live was. This aired on the Fox channel, and it it was kind of groundbreaking. Uh, at the time, Saturday Night Live was kind of stagnant, and uh, Mad TV was a bit more out there. It was no in living color, but uh, from what I heard and what I watched of it, it was rather amusing. The back inside cover is when a heap o nerf, nerf, heap o nerf, and it's got this kid standing upon this pile of nerf toys and guns and bats and things. And I guess it's a contest for uh, sending in something to uh, get just a boatload of nerf toys. So that'd be kind of interesting. It's probably over by now, so I don't think I can enter. And finally, the back outside cover has an advertisement for the Batman Returns video game. Oh, I'm sorry, not the Batman Returns, the Batman Forever video game. Yes, it even has Robin in it. However, it's the handheld game. And it's not the Game Boy version, it's the Tiger Direct game, which has the little no-color LCD screen, which just basically has characters that punch it doesn't look like fun at all but they say you can battle your brains out and you probably want to smash your brains out after playing this game for a little while (sighs) it kept us interested at the time i guess but that does it for ads that does it for the notes and i am so glad to be back on format doing shows by myself even though probably here in a couple of weeks i'll be having another guest host on. But that's here in a couple of weeks. Like to mention, of course, as usual, neither of these books have been reprinted. So if you want to read along, well, you kind of have to go and search out the back issue. But that's it for now. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, we'll catch you next time on another episode of Just One of the Guys. Check it out at the Two True Freaks Podcast Network at twotruefreaks.com. Or family of podcasts, of which I am one. Bye, everyone. See you next week. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to know. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcome. All spam bots are warmly welcome, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the new world too. And you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook. And now you can actually find me there as it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Awards group anytime soon. 
Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenland podcast. The opening music for today's show is I'm So Ronery from Team America World Police. If you'd like to buy this song or buy the movie that the song was featured on, I suggest you head on over to the brand spanking new Two True Freaks website at twotruefreaks.com. In the corner of the top of the page, there's an Amazon.com banner. Click on that and you'll be directed to Amazon.com, where you can purchase the song I'm So Ronery, purchase the soundtrack album in MP3 or CD form, or even purchase the Blu-ray or DVD version of the movie. About puppets who fight terrorists. It's funnier than it sounds. But the best way to get anything from Amazon.com is to go to the Two True Freaks website, because every time you click on the banner at the top of TwoTrueFreaks.com and go to Amazon.com and buy something, a small amount of money goes back to the Two True Freaks website, helping make sure that DeBonzacore Podcast, of which I'm Al One, stay on the air. And that's all something we want.